We are this week beginning a series on the book of Nehemiah, and that's the purpose of this actually. Since I was a new believer and I first encountered this book, I have loved Nehemiah. He's been one of my heroes. So this sermon series has been uh, 40-some years in the making, if that's okay. Um, I love Nehemiah. One commentator has said he is one of the most important people in the Old Testament. Though we hardly, most people don't know much about him. His book does not get much press. We tend to think of Moses and David, Joseph, Daniel, those kind of people. Um, but he's a very significant character. And as we go through his book, you're going to find he is a man of great faith in God. He is all out for God, living on mission with God. The Word of God is central to him. Prayer is important to him. Um, he is a servant, a man of great wisdom, and a man of action. I just love everything about Nehemiah, and I'm really excited to, to jump into this book. Um, let me speak to the book for just a minute, if you don't mind. Um, Zondervan makes these really cool Bible journals that have different books of the Bible that have the, the scripture and then have a notes page on it. And I was wanting to get one of these for everybody as we went through Nehemiah, but they have not yet published the Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. So I decided I would make one, and that's what this is. Um, this has all the text we're going to do, we're going to go through. Um, you'll see different things in a minute. We'll look at it in a second. But um, I'm just excited to be able to go through Nehemiah. The booklet has in the front, the very front page, it's got the diagram of the book some historical background information, which we're going to go through in a minute. It's going to have the text every week that we're going to go through with notes. Probably most importantly, in the back, there will be space each week. For, we're going to take time each week for some application, um, and that'll make sense as we go through the sermon, what we're going to be um, applying it. But we do want to be people who not just hear the Word and just show up and we hear it, but we want to be people who, who obey and live the Word of God. In James chapter 1, verse 25 22, James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but do it, or else you're, you're a fool, essentially, is what he says. And Jesus said, um, those who hear my words and put them into practice are like the wise man who built his house upon a rock. So we want to be people who are obedient, and we really do want to be applying Nehemiah to our lives in a very specific, concrete way, which I will flesh out this morning. Two quick things about the booklet. Um, number one, if you'll open it up to the middle. As we stapled these things, not all the staples got bent properly. In fact, I just did it to myself again. If you would take a minute, you might want to bend those down um, because if not, you may end up uh, poking yourself on this book. Trust me, I have done that many times this week. I know what that feels like. And as you bend them down, be careful because while you're doing that, you might actually run it up under your fingernail, and I've done that this week several times, so you don't want to do that. We tried to get a lot of them done, but not all of them. Okay, the Word of God is convicting enough. We don't want anybody injured by the booklet um, this semester, okay? So just make sure that that staple is fixed. One other thing, if you're visiting with us this week and you're just here one time um, and you're like, I'm not going to need that, that's fine if you got one on the way out. If you, you can take it home. If you just want to leave it on the table, um, that's fine. I, one thing I really want to encourage is I think it would be great if some small groups, if some of the triads went through this together, I know a number of small groups that are meeting and haven't yet decided what they're going to do this semester. This would be great to walk through this um, together each week to talk about what we learned from the text. But again, it's going to be heavy on application and applying it to my life. And so there are some triads. Maybe you could do this. Um, I know of one group already who is helping with this this week. 
and they've kind of bogged down a little bit in the prophets, and they're like, we want to do something a little bit different, so they're going to jump into Nehemiah. A few triads that have a little bit petered out, maybe this is a good time to, to get that group together again and say, hey, let's, let's engage in this. So just uh, really want to encourage you to think about walking with it through some people. All right, I need to set up Nehemiah historically. Can I do that for a minute? Um, and I'm going to try in five minutes to tell the whole story of the Old Testament, so I could use some prayer for this. Um, trust me, you don't want me taking 20 minutes on this. Here is, uh, starting with Abraham and the people of God, here is the story of the Old Testament. God called a man named Abraham and Sarah to leave their country to go to a land that he would show them, and he said, when you go there, I will give you that land, I will give you a son, and from that son, I will create a whole nation. From that nation will come the Messiah who will bless all nations. And so they go and they do what he said, and they do have that son of promise, and he has a son, and then he has sons and daughters, and they begin to grow as a big community, family. They end up in Egypt, where for 400 years they are enslaved in bondage by the Pharaoh there. God raises up a man named Moses to deliver them out of that bondage, and so he helps to set them free. You know the the Red Sea story most likely takes them to the Red Sea, takes them to Mount Sinai. Whereas a community of people, they enter into a covenant with God. They're given his law, but they enter into an agreement with him. And God says, if you do the things that I've asked you to do, my hand of blessing will be upon you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. But if you don't do what I say, um, then there will be judgment that will come because you're my special people and I'm wanting to protect you. And and, uh, he says, if you don't follow my covenant, eventually... I will allow another nation to come in and to take you out again, and you'll be enslaved again, so that you kind of learn that lesson. And then, but I do promise on my grace and mercy, if I do that, I will bring you back out. And they all raise their hands and they say, We agree to this covenant. They wander in the desert for a little while, and then a man named Joshua takes them into the land and they take possession of it, partially. And then for 400 years, Israel is a hot mess. It's the book of Judges. We talked about it with Gideon. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So that eventually they start crying out and they're like, we need a king to rule over us. And this is like the second, if you open this first full section, you'll see where I am now in the history. So God ends up giving them a king and they're a unified kingdom and his name is Saul. And Saul is a big mess and does not work well. So God calls David, who is a man who pursues God passionately, who loves God's heart, but who messes up like all of us do. And then David is followed by Solomon, who it start, has a good start, but eventually leads the nation very much astray and into worshiping a lot of other gods of the nations around them. And so God tells Solomon, the kingdom is going to divide into two because you were not leading them well. And so once he died, Israel did divide into a northern kingdom and a southern. The northern kingdom, the capital was in Samaria up north. The southern kingdom, the capital was in Jerusalem. Ten tribes up north, two down south. And they still do not follow him well, still follow the other gods, do a lot of junk. I mean, sacrificing their children to idols um, of various gods, just a lot of messed up stuff. The northern kingdom was really particularly messed up. And so God allowed the Assyrian empire to invade them in 722 BC and took them captive back into Assyria, which is kind of in northwest Iraq right now. And then 150 years later, the southern kingdom, the same thing. They would not repent of their ways, so God allowed the Babylonian kingdom, which also came from Iraq, came in, invaded, destroyed the city, tore down the walls, uh, massacred most of the people, took some of the people then back to Babylon in exile, and so they were no longer in the land that God had given them. 
But just as he promised that he would bring them back, he did. The Babylonian Empire was invaded by the Persian Empire, and God raised up a Persian king named Cyrus the Great, and God put on his heart to let the Jewish people go back to their homeland. And so they did. And they went back in three waves, and that's kind of this. You can see it on this, and that's kind of um, the diagram that's on there. They went back in three waves. Zerubbabel led a large group of about 50,000 back in 538 B.C., In about 458 B.C., Ezra the priest led back some more to the land, and he went back to do much-needed spiritual reform. And then in 440 B.C., Nehemiah led a third return, and this time he went back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So when we come to Nehemiah, that's what he's doing. He's led back that third wave to rebuild the walls. So Nehemiah was a rebuilder, or we could say Nehemiah was a restorer. He was a restorer. And so the question is, why would we study a book of the Bible about a dude who's rebuilding walls? Like, what's the point of that? What's that have to do with my real life? And I want you to know it has everything to do with your real life because he was called to be a restorer of the walls, but we are called to join God on his mission of restoring everything back to himself. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. So we are also called to be restorers, okay? So this book has everything to do with me, and there's a lot I can learn from it. So let me explain why I say this idea that we're called to be restorers. And I want to um, go to Jeremiah chapter 29. So if you will look in here, it is the first scripture, and you'll see the biblical story in here. This is the first scripture that's in here, Jeremiah chapter 29. When I talked about work, and I encouraged us, when I was talking about the different metaphors or ways to think about my work, I I encouraged us to think of being gardeners, of being ambassadors, and of being a restorer. And this is the text we looked at. So would you stand with me? I would like to read in Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read verses um, 4 to 7. It actually says Jeremiah 29, 1, 4 to 7. Forget the 1. Like the Navajo Indians, when they used to make blankets, they would always put in their blanket one mistake intentionally because only God is perfect and that was their way of doing it. So that was my way of putting in something imperfect in this uh, for the same reason. (laughs) That's always my excuse when I mess up. You know, the Navajos had this cool tradition, so. All right, we want to come to the word of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. This is God having Jeremiah write a letter to the exiles in Babylon. So here's what he says in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And this is the word of the Lord. And God's people said, amen, so be it. You may be seated. So in this text, we find the people of God living in Babylon, living in exile on the periphery of a culture that's not their own, right? A lot of cultural commentators have said of our culture right now, and this is, I mean, we know this is true, we feel it. Since the 60s and 70s, the church has shifted from being central to our culture to being on the periphery. So the truth is, is I'm living in my own culture, but in a sense, I'm feeling like I'm living as an exile, and that's no complaint, okay? I'm living as an exile. I think we all feel that. And so here's the question. What does God say to people living in exile? 
What does he want us to do? How do we relate to culture? Not just then, but now. And here's, here's what I would say. I mean, from the text, what would you say? Do I just give in and fit into culture? Wherever it's going, I just go along, right? Is that what I do? Do I separate from it? Do we create an enclave over here and we're separate from culture? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that what you see in the text? Do we fight against it? Is that what he's calling them to do? Rise up and fight the culture? Not at all. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. And in verse 7, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've called you. Pray for it because if it prospers, then you will prosper. That's what he calls them as exiles to do. I love this text. It is so foundational to how I think about how do I, as a follower of Jesus, relate to my own culture, my own city. Because the thing he was calling them to do is he says, I want you to seek the flourishing of the place in which I planted you. Seek the flourishing of Emporia. Love your neighbor. Serve your city. Seek the common good for the sake of my kingdom. That's what he called them to do. And look in verse 4. I've got it kind of in all caps. He wrote this to all who found themselves in exile there. And what I'm going to talk about this morning applies to all of us equally. That like these Israelites in exile, that we are called to actively and positively engage our city in the words of John, James, James Davis and Hunter, to live as a faithful present. In the words of verse 7, to pray for our city and to seek the peace and prosperity of our city. Now, I put it in the text. There's a very important Hebrew word that occurs in this. It's the Hebrew word shalom. The Hebrew word shalom three times. A powerful, important story. Um, a story that is so rich in meaning that one English word cannot translate it well. That's why even in verse 7, it is translated as peace and prosperity because it's just a rich word. So I want to define shalom for you because this concept is so important. Cornelius Platinga Jr. says that in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Several years ago, as I thought about this, these are some things I wrote down. It's a state of well-being. It's a place filled to the brim with God's blessing where absolute goodness permeates and prevails, where everything is rightly ordered and rightly related, where everything is in perfect harmony, where everything is exactly as it should be. That's what shalom is. And I want you to know this use of shalom in this text is so significant because it, he is placing those people in exile into the larger story of God by using that. Because this word shalom reflects back to Genesis 1 and 2, the original creation that was full of shalom, and it reflects to what God is doing in the world. And so I want to get to that larger story. I've done this with you before, but it's so important I want to do it again. So are you willing to go there? I mean, again, you don't have a choice. We're going to go there, okay? Um, I just asked, what's that? There's a word for that where you ask a question, but you really, uh, parents do this a lot, right? <laughs> it's the drama of Scripture in three acts. The drama of Scripture in three acts. Act one, God creates. And the world is exactly as he intended it, as exactly as he designed. It's full of his shalom, full of his blessing that comes from his presence and being in relationship with him. And then in act two comes Corruption. Satan enters the story, as you know, he tempts the man and woman, they reject the reign of God in their lives, they reject relationship with him, they want to take control, but through that the whole creation becomes ruined and corrupted, broken and flawed. And that full shalom that was in the creation now, a lot of it's disappeared and now we just find shalom partially in little places. 
But rather than leave the creation alone like that, God says, I'm going to step into human history and I'm going to act and I'm going to rescue that. And that's going to lead us to the third act. And before I get to that third act, I just want to be crystal clear on what Scripture says the mission of God is, okay? So I just want to show you. It's in the book, but I want to show you four Scripture that all talk about Jesus when He comes as King, what His mission is with this creation. In Matthew 19, 28, He says, when I come and I'm sitting at my throne, and He calls that time, He says, at the renewal of, would you say the next word with me? The renewal of all things. In Acts 3.21, Peter preaching about when Jesus comes as king, he calls that time when he does that, that God at that time will restore everything. In Colossians 1.19-20, Paul writing about God, it says that it is God's mission through the Messiah to reconcile to himself all things. And then in Revelation 21.5, Jesus speaking says, he says, behold, I am making Everything what? I'm making everything new. Everything new. This third act in God's story is restoration. Right now it's partial, but when Jesus comes, it will be complete. And I want you to know his mission is to renew, to restore, to reconcile to himself, to make new all things, okay? All things. He wants all of his creation back. He wants all of it. Um, and he wants all of it filled with his shalom again because what he intended has been become broken and ruined. And the centerpiece of that restoration is his desire to restore to himself people who don't live in relationship with him. That's the centerpiece. But I want you to know he wants all of it. And so when Jeremiah is calling them to seek the shalom of their city, he's calling them to live into this narrative, okay? He's calling them to live into this. And knowing this narrative arc is so important for me to know how am I to live in this place and in this time, in light of this story. And I want you to know everybody, every single one of us is called to be living on mission with God, and His mission is the restoration of all things. We're to be living with Him. And that is why at 12th, we long to become a biblical community of kingdom people who are joining God in the restoration of what? of all things, but I can't be responsible for all things, so I'm doing that one person, one place at a time. One person, one place at a time. That's why that's our mission. That's why that's on the front of the booklet, joining God in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. And do you want to know the main place you can be on mission with God? I'll tell you. I mean, it's, it's really pretty simple. The main place that I can join God on his mission, it's in the places where God has sovereignly put me. And it's with the people who inhabit the places that he put me in. Those are the places I'm to be on mission with God. The places he has put me and the people who inhabit those places. And I I really want everybody leaving here with a strong sense that all of us are called to be on mission with God. God is on a redemptive mission and that all of us are called to be redemptive agents in his creation. Like in Jeremiah 29, we are all called to be shalom bringers. We are all called to be restorers, all of us, restorers, joining God in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. And we do this act of restoration, we do it in the places where we live, work, study, and play. Places where we live, work, study, and play. That's how simple it is. Um, The places that God has put us in. 
and then the people that are in those places. And God, all of us have influence. And he wants us to leverage that influence in those places for the sake of his kingdom. So I want us to do an exercise. If you will turn, um, because the order I put this in after I did it, I'm like, this first part is really interesting. If you'll turn back, you'll see the great restoration on the bottom. Okay, If you'll turn to that page, you'll see on the right-hand side, call to be restore, live, work, study, and play is there. On the left is some space, and I want us to do an exercise for just a minute. I want us to write down, think about the places God has put us, because we're not there by accident, and the people in those places. So take a minute, write down the people in your nuclear household, the people in your home. Write the names of those people down. Yeah, we're on that left-hand page. Write the names of the people in your immediate family Think about your extended family. And when I'm saying this, not everybody, okay? We don't have time. Um, my, both of my parents grew had eight siblings. I had like 90 cousins. So I'm not going to sit and write down all of that, okay? But there are people in your extended family who you, who you remain close to, you have contact with, that you have the ability to influence. So write down some people in your extended family that God has still given you the ability to bring influence into their life. So take a minute and write down who are some of those people in your extended family. How about neighbors? And when you think of neighbors, this diagram is helpful to think about. Who has God put around me? We don't have time for you to do all those, but maybe you think about who are the neighbors that I feel like who are around me that I have a significant, some kind of influence, like I've, I've, been, I've been able to get to know them. Or maybe it's the dude who walks the two dogs and almost every morning when I come out to leave, he's walking the dogs by, right? Um, who just lives over on the corner over here. But you know, so maybe you don't even know his name, but the dude who walks the dogs or the couple across the street who are rebuilding that house. Just write down maybe some of those key people in your neighborhood that you feel like God has them there for you to have influence. Doesn't have to be all your neighbors, but who would be two or three of the key ones? What about work? Write down where you work or where you study, okay? Not just the place, but write down the names of a few, again, a few key people that you feel like they respond to you, you feel like you have some influence, um, maybe work closely with you. Just write down not only where you work, write down some names of some people who inhabit that space. 
Next would be the places where you play. Maybe it's the three or four guys you play pickleball, pickleball with once a week or the guys you do disc golf with regularly. But write down, what is, what is that play? Who are the key people that God, however that is, God has brought that thing together and you're there for influence. So write that down. And then school. Now, some of you are already in school. I'm not talking so much about in school because work, school, to me, go together. But maybe you're involved with a school. You're part of a theater group with a, as a parent. You know some other parents in band or something. If, if that's true of you, write down what is that thing, maybe who are some of the people, the key people that you regularly relate to there. than other places you frequent, um, places that perhaps or hopefully you go to with intentionality because you're wanting to build relationships with people there. Uh, how many of you remember Cheers? Dare I bring up a bar show in church, but Cheers, and every time, every time one character walked in, everybody would say his name. What was that name? Yeah, Norm, right? Okay, because that was a place that he actually had some influence. So maybe it's a place, another place you frequent that when you walk in, they say your name. Okay? And who are some of the people there that you're wanting to, to be restored with? And then the one that's not on here. Who are some of your friends? Closest key friends that you have. So maybe create your own little category there on the side of that and write down a couple of those. Two or three. This page represents the places and the people that God calls you to be on mission, okay? And I want to take it one step further. When I've talked about restoration, if you remember in the beginning of the Bible when God creates, there's four primary relationships. My relationship with God, with myself, with other people, with the nature around me. So there's the spiritual, the social, the emotional, the physical. Again, God cares about how much of his creation, just part of it, or does he care about all of it. He cares about all of it. He cares about all of this. And sometimes I feel like as church people, we so focus on the spiritual and there's nothing wrong with that, okay? People's souls matter. I just talked to a bunch of people yesterday about their souls, okay? It matters passionately to me because people talk to me about my soul, okay? That matters. But everything about people matters. Do you know that? Their emotional health matters. The, if there's relationships between people that are broken, if there's something, in, you know, the physical, like there's, there's a health situation going on, it all matters to God. And God wants me to be restored in the totality of people's lives. And sometimes if I want a hearing in the spiritual part of their life, do you know what I first have to do? I have to engage them in these others. Does that make sense? That if I show myself to be a shalom bringer in their relationships and the physical part of their life and their own emotional health, if I do that, you know, as the saying goes, if people know that I care, then they will care what I 
No, so we care about. So what I, what we're not going to spend a lot of time on this right now, but this right side of the page, if you could condense that down to five or six key places, relationships, and what are the areas where you see brokenness in those places, in those people that you can come alongside with God to be a restorer? Does that make sense? And so maybe, it's, maybe you'd write down it's physical for this guy. Maybe it's his emotional health. He's really struggling. I want to pray for him and see how I can help him. But that's something I'd like you to, to spend the rest of your day doing. It's hot outside. You're just going to be inside stuck all day, right? So you might as well do something like this. But I'd really like you to condense, that, condense all that down. Um, and really, that's why, you know, this booklet, because as we go through Nehemiah, we're going to be looking at the life of a man who lived as a restorer, just like we're called to be, okay? And we're going to be learning each week life principles from him, and each week we're going to go to the back and ask the question, how can I take, what are some life principles I can take from his life that I can put into my life as I try to live as a restorer with those people and in those places, so this is really, what we're doing is really um, significant. And we want to be in prayer for those people. If you flip, I think, back a page. Again, I put this together in kind of a whacked order, but that's a, just this part. The rest of it's perfect. It's great. Um, look at the, the page with Isaiah. Scripture. Isaiah Scripture. You can read the whole text, but in Isaiah 58, I want to start halfway through verse 11. It starts with you. Speaking of God's people, you will be a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repair of broken walls, restore of streets with dwellings. And Isaiah 61, 3 to 4, again, of the people of God, they will be called they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. And they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I love these words. And when I think of my life and living on mission with God as a restore, these words to me are so significant. That we are people who are to rebuild the ancient ruins, to restore places that are devastated, Right? Um, to be repairs of broken walls, restorers of streets that have, that have fallen in disrepair. And when I think of this mission to be a restorer and a repairer in people's lives and the places around me, I think of my family name, Forsyth, which is a good Scottish name. Forsyth is how you're supposed to say it. Because we have a family motto that goes back to the 1500s, and I absolutely love it. Here is the crest of the Forsyth clan. And our family motto is this, in Latin, is stora, in storator ruinae. Does that sound like anything we've heard this morning? That we are called as foresights to be restorers of the ruins, okay? And I love that family motto and to try to live into that. Twelfth, as a family here, this is to be our family motto, okay? So the whole point of this sermon today is I want all of you to live as foresights, Okay? I want you to join my family and live. But is that not a cool motto? That that's what we're called to be. And then look at the bottom of that page, Ezekiel 22, 29 to 30. The word of the Lord came to me. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy. They mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. 
God is looking for people who will find in the places you put him, the places where the walls are broken down, in those gaps in people's lives and in those places. And he's looking for his people to come and stand in the gap and to seek with his help to be a restorer of that section of the wall. Does that make sense? And I've got outside of the four walls of this church, okay, there are people and places God has me, and I'm to stand in the gap of those places. And outside of these four walls, there are broken down places that you are to stand in the gap of. And you're not called to stand in the gap of my, my gaps, right? And I'm not called to stand in yours. We're each called into those places. And so may we be people who do that, who stand in the gap of the broken places, and we long to let God use us to be people on mission with him to bring about the restoration of all things. Would you say it with me? One person, one place at a time. I'm not called to save the world. I'm not called to save Emporia. I'm not called to save half of Emporia. I'm not called to be a restore. I'm called to be a restore in the places I inhabit and the people God has put around me. So I really hope you are leaving this morning knowing that all of us are called to be on mission with God, and it's a great mission. That we've got the privilege of joining God in the restoration of all things, and he's going to do it. He's going to finish it when Jesus comes, and he's the one that's at work empowering, but I get to walk with him and join him in that. Is that not a great privilege to be able to do that? That's what we're called into, and that's to me what Nehemiah is about. I hope as we go through Nehemiah, and we're gaining, we're just going to be taking nuggets every week out of his life. What's it look like to live as a restorer? And I hope that every day, every morning, you'll wake up on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, as you head into those places that you'll say, I'm on mission with God. I am called to be a redemptive agent where I'm at. I'm called to be a shalom bringer to the places that are missing shalom. I'm called to be a restorer because that's what we're called to be. Um, I don't do this a ton, but I'm going to ask you to actually say something. Repeat after me. Would you say this after me? I am called to be a shalom bringer. Would you say that? I am called to be a shalom bringer. And even with more gusto, I am called to be a restorer. I'm called. Yeah, let's even have more gusto than that. Can we do it? I am called to be a restorer. I hope you feel that in your gut because that's what God is all about, joining him in the restoration of all things. So next week, we're going to jump into this text in chapter 1. And I mean, it starts fast. It's really great. I'm excited about this. Again, we're going to be taking nuggets out of his life. Try not to forget to bring this back because we're not only, it's the space for notes, but we're going to really seek to do some application each week, how you think about your spaces and the people around you. Um, We aren't going to have a lot of extra of these to give out. We worked really hard this week to get the ones that we did. So um, stick it somewhere you remember it. On the dash of your car, stick it with your Bible. Um, So would just challenge you to do that. I'm really excited about it. Maybe even right now you could write your name on this, so your family. I'd hate to create a lack of shalom in the household of people fighting over books, so maybe even put your name on top of that. Would you stand with me? I'd like to end in a word of prayer. I'd like for you to join me in a prayer. As God's people. So would you pray this with me? God of rescue and restoration, thank you for your great and beautiful mission in the world. I want to be a part of it. So, here I am, Lord. I come before you. Oh, yeah, I come before you.
with an open heart and with open hands. Use me. Empower me with your spirit and send me. Send me. That's why we end every week saying, you are sent. This is called to live on mission with God. So 12th, may we in Emporia, may we be known as a community of faith here, of people who are shalom bringers to the spaces that we inhabit. And may we be known as people who are restorers, okay? They don't necessarily have to know we're living on mission with God, but they're like, those people are restorers. They bring the shalom of God. May we be that kind of people that everywhere we go, the spaces we inhabit, that we would bring the love, the life, and the liberation of Jesus because that's what he calls us to. May we be those people, people who rebuild the ancient ruins, who restore places that have long been devastated. So can I pray for us? Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this mission because this mission came to my life. You brought me into your family. You brought a spiritual restoration as your child, and then you began to restore other parts of my life. And I thank you that you not only called, you not only gave that to me, but you have called me to be a part of that in the lives of real people in real places. And just the joy of walking with you in that. So, Lord, may we take this challenge to be restorers and shalom bringers, all of us in the places we inhabit and in the people we know. And I pray as we walk through this book of Nehemiah that we will just gain great insights that will help us to know how better to do that. Because we want to be people who are joining you in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the great restorer. I pray in his name. Amen. All right, 12th, you are sent.